Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Brought to you by Gaganal. Welcome along to the second episode of Kitchen Conversations on Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganal. Our very special guest is one of those people whose name is instantly recognised, and following that recognition, there's always a huge big smile. She's probably one of our most loved New Zealand restaurateurs, a South Island legend with a career spanning well over 40 years, and she's played a huge part in transforming two sleepy regional towns into international destinations. And that's when the Tourism Board first noticed that in those days they ticked why they were coming to New Zealand. And people started to tick. They were coming to Oliver's and Clyde for the rabbit, venison and pickle walnut pie. Get ready to immerse yourself in the life and times of pioneering restaurateur Fleur Sullivan in just a few minutes. But first, a few little crispy bits. Crispy. Now those cute and tiny microgreens have long been the darlings of professional chefs. But for Wellingtonians at least, the opening of an in-house microgreen grow system in a Wellington supermarket complete with automated watering and lighting now gives food lovers the opportunity to purchase super fresh miniature greens seven days a week. I asked Lucy Matheson of Shoots Microgreens how hard it's been to take the microgreens beyond the restaurant chef's tweezers to the home cook. The tricky part is uh, what do I do with them? And that's a really common question because microgreens are more than a garnish, but people aren't quite sure how they can use them. So they're an ingredient in a meal. They're not just a garnish. Breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, I guess the message is don't be scared. Put them on everything. What types of microgreens will be available in the stores? So we've got seven uh, options available in the Thorndon store as of today. So a micro mix, which is a blend of three different microgreens. We've chosen them because they're really nice flavours that complement each other. They're a great salad base or to throw on top of those pizzas I mentioned. Then we've got a smoothie mix, uh, which has the miraculous little micro broccoli in it, as well as wheatgrass. Now, micro broccoli has been measured to have up to 100 times the nutrients of the fully grown plant. Really nice boost for your smoothie without being a really dominant flavour. And then we've got single origin plants. So coriander, dark opal basil, pea shoots, sorrel and uh, radish. So a different mix of spice, versus, you know, the traditional corianders with just a little bit more kick than you might expect in the dirt-grown variety. That's quite a whack, isn't it, in that uh, broccoli? They're a superfood for sure. By, you know, harvesting them just before you eat them, we're making sure you get the full nutritional benefit. So we grow in a tiered hydroponic garden in a system that uses six times less land, 90% less water. There's no leaching into waterways, there's no soil erosion, no pesticides, it's chemical-free. Um, and we do all we can to recycle and reuse. We're pretty proud of that. And to be honest, I think it's what customers expect and what they should hold food producers accountable for. The first in-store trial of Shoots Microgreens opened at Wellington New World Thorndon on June 12th. For more info, go to shoots.co.nz. And uh, a little birdie told me that Shoots are going to be working with Garage Project and Field and Green Restaurant to present a pop-up inside their inner city farm for Visa Wellington on a plate this October. So keep your eye open for it. Clever Bites. Kiwi entrepreneur Don Shepherd has launched Citizen, a new company that's taking the circular economy to new levels. Citizen tackles the problem of food waste by rescuing perfectly good food that would otherwise go to waste and transforming it into high-quality, great-tasting food and drink products. 
In the first instance, Don and his team have focused on rescuing surplus bread. They then use it as a key ingredient in their beer. So I had to ask the question, why bread? Bread is actually New Zealand's most wasted. 20 million loaves are going to waste domestically every year, as stated by Love Food Hate Waste. And that doesn't even take into consideration the actual bread waste between the baking and distribution and selling via the baking partners and supermarkets. So there is additional bread there that's going to waste. So it's the number one most wasted. It may not be going to landfill, but it is going to low value stock feed. And we want to actually get more resource and more value out of that valuable product. And can you briefly explain the process for me? It's really exciting. So bread into beer is not a new idea. It actually originated 7,000 years ago in Babylon when bread accidentally got wet. It fermented and they sipped it and they drank it and they went, oh, this is quite nice. 7,000 <laughs> years later, there's about a, you know, a million craft breweries around the world doing some really amazing things with brewing beer. However, bread beer hasn't been a big thing. Um, it's not a new idea. There are other brands around the world and here in New Zealand doing it. So what we do is we actually rescue fresh bread that reaches its display date, we then take that and remove about a third of the malt barley out of the standard brewing process with the bread. And then we create delicious um, bread beer. But that's where the bread beer story stops. It goes from bread into beer. And what Citizen's doing is we then take that beer waste, so that beer mash, that product that's left over from the brewing process, and that is either ending up in landfill or ending up in stock feed. And we rescue and we rework and what we call regrain and turn that into a high protein, high fiber, high antioxidant spent grain flour. And then we use that to bake bread again. So we go from bread to beer and then beer to bread. So a really cool circular program. Very, very clever. You've got some other products in the, in the pipeline that you're planning to launch? So Ben Bailey is our food vision. We're using that spent grain flour and going, what else can we use with it? So he's taking it into biscuits. He's taking it into replacing stabilizers and sausages and creating spent grain sausages. He's creating pasta. So it's like a wholemeal pasta. So really tasty, delicious products. And then he's also, with our help, is looking at New Zealand's number two wasted product, which is vegetables. So we're looking at what can we rescue from vegetable products. So there's some really fun things coming along from stocks and all sorts of fun and tasty ingredients, thanks to Ben Bailey. And it's more important than ever now to rethink our approach to food systems, food waste and sustainability. So you can find more info at citizen.co.nz. Crispy Bits. A new charitable initiative funded by the Trust's social enterprise with a unique focus on West Auckland has been urgently launched to help thousands of Aucklanders coping with food shortages as a result of COVID-19. The program will link those in need with access to a zero-waste budget cooking series to ensure they can provide cost-effective nutrition for their families. I asked spokesperson Kerry Allen to explain how the Easy Choice Family Kai booklets will work. So the Easy Choice booklets are essentially, there are four weeks of meals, um, five meals a week for a family of about six, two adults and up to four children. And the idea is that the recipes provide sort of nourishing, um, healthy kai or food that is a, affordable um, and it's the recipes are really easy to follow. They're quite, um, they're relatively simple so they don't take a lot of time. And also they're based on the fact that we want people to um, use all the produce that they can, say the whole chicken and the whole broccoli and kind of reduce waste as well. So 
families can switch out the recipes. They can choose one recipe and then do that again in the week if they wanted to. So obviously it's a bit of a mix and match. And there are actually four different booklets, winter, spring, summer, and autumn. So they're actually buying the kind of produce and things that are in season, which also helps keep the cost down. What sort of budget would a family need to make these meals? We can never say exactly, obviously, because costs always change, but probably about $60 a week. That's for the ingredients for the meal. So not so not your salt and pepper and your oil and those other sorts of things you need in your pantry. But I'm, I'm imagining between $60 and $70. In addition, free online video demonstrations hosted by New Zealand Culinary Fair chef Steve Weston will show how the recipes can be prepared. You can find them over on the Trust's Facebook page and for more info, search thetrusts.co.nz. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. In April, a heart-wrenching article in the New York Times written by Gabrielle Hamilton, chef and owner of restaurant Prune in Manhattan's East Village, saw Gabrielle revisiting her original dreams for her celebrated restaurant that had been closed after 20 years of operation due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Gabrielle wondered whether there would even be a place for Prune in the future of New York restaurants. That article was published just shortly before every chef and restaurateur, sommelier, waiter, front of house manager, pretty much every person in the restaurant and hospo industry in New Zealand had no choice but to be sitting at home thinking about what the future might bring. I forwarded the article to Fleur Sullivan in Moraki. At the time, Fleur's restaurant, Fleur's Place, was just inches away from celebrating 20 years as one of New Zealand's most loved destination restaurants. And Fleur, I imagined, might be experiencing similar feelings herself. Her response to the article was exactly as I suspected. Cuisine Bites. I want every restaurateur to read this in New Zealand. Every established restaurateur, every grown up restaurateur. It gave me such a beautiful, beautiful feeling and a huge calmness. And I wanted to reach out and hug her. And so I caught up with Fleur as she sat in her restaurant kitchen behind closed doors during lockdown. But before we get into that article, my overriding question had to be, how did this magnificent woman end up in the tiny town of Moraki? As you're about to hear, it's been a long and incredibly interesting road to the establishment of one of New Zealand's most iconic restaurants. I often think, um, even though I'm now 80, but I think even when I was young, it was a pretty medieval uh, surf, I think, we led on the Waitaki River. It sustained generation after generation, and there been, I think, on the fourth generation probably, something like that. My granddad, grandma, because she got appendicitis and had to be put in the the cart of the horse that was the fastest in the district to get her through to Waimati. And she was 20 years younger than Granddad. Was he driving the car? Yes, yes. They had had the fastest horses in the district. (laughs) And um, and my aunt, who, that's another how we lived. Granddad didn't think girls needed to go to school. It's just so interesting to look back on my life We all had our jobs to do, and we did them happily and gathered the blue gums and the pine cones. My dad 
one thing he said was never buy land that you can't grow things on. So now with this lockdown, the mint, the potatoes, right now we've got the um, this lettuce because it's just got cold. And I've got miners' lettuce everywhere from Central Otago that are brought over. And that, that's your salad. You know, it's you've got to be able to grow things and make yourself happy for yourself. Once you left home, you went off on some wild culinary adventures across the pubs of the coast and then on to the glamorous 1970s hospo life in Queen. What were you doing there? Well, at that time, um, I'd worked in a pub on the West Coast, of course, I did that. And then I went to... As a barmaid um, or as a waitress? or No, I managed it. Oh, right. I was 23, I think. Goodness. And, yes. And a woman. And, yes. And um, I had an aga, if you remember in the yes, book. Yes, yeah. An aga. <laughs> and, of course, I would wander off. And I think I invented the jug <laughs> because the guys used to sit in the pub and they'd play cards. And they were all roadmen keeping the road open. And they got tired or, of waiting for you. You know, all they'd do was mark down how many jugs they'd had. <laughs> they were happy. They didn't need me. And I would go eeling and I'd come back with eels and all sorts of things. But also, where I was at the Ocarito Forks, that's where the White Hearing Sanctuary is, the pub had been cleared. The land around it had been cleared. So I would, would be in the bush bringing back the bush and I'd dig a hole, put a cow manure in the bottom of the hole and stick my, my native tree in it. And the old always be saying, oh, that'll never work. She'll never get that to work. <laughs> but it did work. <laughs> so they were also laughing at me for putting the bush back. Yes. When they all cleared it. And trying to, trying to replant and re-establish everything. I'd also had Dunstan House in Clyde when I was 27. Hotel, beautiful staircase. But it had about 18 bedrooms and a bar, which I turned into an antique shop. And I had an art gallery was out the back. And I did bed and breakfast. And it became such a... Um, people came there. Yeah. And so I didn't have enough electricity in the building. And I didn't have this and I didn't... And I couldn't borrow any money. I bet you didn't have Wi-Fi. Any... No. No. <laughs> and... Uh, um, <laughs> It doesn't really affect my life too much now, even Wi-Fi. <laughs> but I, that's when I first, I tried to save the whole town because it was from the goldfields, all these beautiful buildings. Well, it's still there now and it's absolutely magnificent. But I was quite interested about that, actually, because yeah. you seemed to, in those days, understand the importance of telling the stories of the town and, you know, becoming a magnet for people so that people would visit before anybody else really did. Yes. I, I loved history. Like I was living in history with those generations at, at Grandad's. Yeah, yeah. And it was natural and normal to be part of that system, which I think is the Marae system. I think if we get separated from that, that's when I had a few meltdowns mm. and people wiser than me can put it all together. Mm. All that. But I've survived <laughs> and maybe seven or eight years in Clyde. I'm, I'm not good at remembering how long things were, but I'm better. So off I went via Invercargill and we won't even talk in good to me too. 
But I ended up in Queenstown and worked. Working in Queenstown, it was the beginning of pans cooking. Right. So cooking pans. And the Europeans were scattered around. It was And that was dream. when New Zealand had its love affair with French food and all of that sort of thing? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. There were about four restaurants pretty much only in Queenstown. And, the- and that's what I love, walking around the street windows. And you just walk past and you're actually quickly counting how many people are at the table. <laughs> and and the, the uh, maitre d' or the front of house people there would look at you walking past and go, we'd smile quietly at each other, you know, just <laughs> smile as pretending we were going out for an evening stroll. But we were looking at all the opposition. You're checking the out time. the competition. Total, like, imagine in Queensland, only four, four, people, four properties. <laughs> And, um, and was ICARTS st- uh, there then? ICARTS, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's been well, there forever. Well, what we used to try and do in those days was get closed as fast as we could so that we could get to ICARTS. To the bar. To the bar. Because <laughs> that used and to be the place, didn't it? <laughs> and yeah. and, uh, and uh, then there was Travel Lodge. And if you could get in there and sit with all the guests, that was pretty good too. <laughs> and... Um, I worked for David Williams, who had number eight Ballarat. And over many nights of sitting around the pool, we devised, well, in Queenstown, the pizza house. And that was made in the storeroom at the back of number eight Ballarat Street. The cow was probably the first different place. And very rude staff, always. <laughs> very rude yeah, so that that was a prerequisite, was it? You so proud to be part of the cow, yes. I suppose. But um, so anyway, away we went. In the meantime, I had kids running riot uh, in Queenstown, and the best thing for me was that they took up skiing. We're up the hills um, for weekends and uh, holidays, and were so tired they didn't get into too much trouble. But one of the things they used to do was tickle the trout in the Queenstown stream, unbeknown to me. Well, I'd showed them how to do it, but unbeknown to me, they took the fish to the butcher and he would smoke it for them and then they would sell it ah. to the tourists. And you didn't so, know about this? No, I didn't know they were doing that, but I'd shown them how to catch fish. Business that. entrepreneurs, they, they, they've yeah. got the genes, see? And, yes, well, that was another story. <laughs> Talking about jeans, we all wanted all the trendy clothes from upstairs and downstairs. My friend Erina and Terry, who are the mum and dad of Aaron, the photographer. Oh, right. Okay. Aaron McLean, yeah. They had jag fashions and they had the best clothes. So by about that time, uh, except for my littlest kid, most of us could wear the same clothes. Right, so you could so share. Get all these beautiful clothes here. And um, we could go out probably two at a time or one at a time. <laughs> and look but it's, this is another interesting thing. Mum and Dad, when I first went home, Mum and Dad were at Duntroon then, arrived in jeans. Mum was mortified. She wasn't that old, but she was still of the generation where denim was work clothes. Yes, yeah. And she was very... Upset, and of course, jag was the height of fashion, wasn't it? Yeah, the jacket or the top would cost ninety dollars, and they only earned about that. So, Fleur, let's move on. Let's move on because I, in the book, I got a little bit confused about 
What came first? So I went to Clyde to pick time for the herb factory. There was a herb factory there. And it was from the early days. And it was a dream true for me to find Clyde. And so I, I, in the season, I would pick the time and take it to the herb factory and sell it. And that was the, just, you're in the hills, you had the rocks and the briar, and I picked the, the briar rose hips, and flower, wildflower service for people to send to florists. And one of the shop ladies in Alexandria saved all the big coat cartons for me to do all this sort of stuff. But then they wanted them spray painted yellow or gold oh. or something. All interest in that little venture. Well, it was meant to be. Mm, mm. And then I found Clyde and I desperately to buy one of the heritage buildings. I did manage to do that. That was the Dunson Hotel, which was established in 1860, but not as the building I bought, just through it. the original one got blown down and the storms and the got it all. The whole town was built for the goldfields. And the history of the goldfields, the gold from the river, the Quarra, the mighty Molyneux, that money established New Zealand. Mm. So this comes up again in my life. I did that for as long as I could, and I could never do any better, understand the value of their buildings, and could envisage what it is today in those days. It needed to be saved. So I pretty much exhausted myself doing that, but I ended up in Queenstown working then. I sold it, went to Queenstown so I would learn how to do modern food. That's why I went to Queenstown. It was like going to finishing school. Okay, yeah. I saw the class. I saw this beautiful food. And I... A bit of sophistication. Yes, yes. I met a, a, a chef called John Brain. We had a, a, a friendship, a relationship, and then... Things in Queenstown weren't meant to be serious in any way at all. I wanted to make a restaurant in Clyde so that I could make somewhere for the people of that district to share the pure pleasure that I had discovered of eating in Queenstown, our food. We had the DB Golden Central that served the oldest style food ever and the oldest style ever. And if you weren't seated by seven o'clock or half a six or whatever it might have been for yes, dinner, yeah. but it, you had to pre-order and it was put in the oven. And, and that would have been just the typical roasts and things like that, yeah? But it was the centre of sophistication in the district. Mm. So I, I took John down to Clyde. The pact was made that we either went together or separate. So we decided we would go together and that was the best thing because if I'd been in the kitchen and he was out the front, we would have had no customers and vice versa. <laughs> so, and I could be bossy in the kitchen and refuse to take things and all that if it wasn't as I as envisaged. No, not you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And um, we built it for like eight, nine months. We built the restaurant in Clyde, Oliver's, 
Um, and it was really something, wasn't it? It was. It became the place to be. Oh, so beautiful. And it is so beautiful still. And um, eight months, I think we probably worked on it or longer and opened it. And it was just the general store. But when I was first in Clyde, it was a general store. I was like, wow, exciting. I wanted it to be casual, elegant, beautiful plates, beautiful crockery, beautiful food, low lights, stone open fire, grand piano. Yeah, beautiful. Hospitality at its finest, yeah? But we still wore sandals and those lovely wraparound skirts, Indian print skirts and that, which all of a sudden people started coming to the restaurant in Rolls Royces and beautiful cars and pearls and fur stoles. Here we are being so modern at our... Indian skirts and things, but <laughs> one of the things that people looked at the most was between your starter and your main, and you'd hear them saying, oh, so-and-so were here, was here the other night, and it only took 15 minutes, and we've been waiting 20 minutes or whatever, <laughs> and it was like, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? But I, I persevered, and I did that for 20 years, and I did it eight years on my own because it became too much job. And that was like another whole chapter. Gosh, if only the men didn't get involved, it'd be so much more simple, wouldn't it? It would be. If we could just do it all ourselves. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you get to Fleur's place? What happened there? Oliver's was like another world. But people came from all over, and that's where I made my rabbit, venison and pickled walnut pie. Right. And that's when the tourism board first noticed that when people were coming to New Zealand in those days, they ticked why they were coming to New Zealand. And they ticked, uh, people started to tick, they were coming to Oliver's and Clyde for the rabbit, venison and pickle walnut pie. So you were on their radar. Yes, and that's when they came to have a look. They said it was the first food tourism they'd had. Interesting. Mike Moore was the Minister of Tourism uh-huh. and, and the, this other guy, I should remember his name, he was the person that stepped me along the way, like came and saw it and loved it. Saw potential, yeah. And that's how I got to go to the Food Awards and the Government House and um, the, the stepping into that tourist world yes. of I, it was 20 years, but I'd set up the pickle walnut factory with Ian Near, and fit. like there was money available if you had good ideas, mm. and I had too many ideas, and gave them away to other people who would want to do them, mm, mm. and um, so so everybody can be successful in this whole industry if we get it right, and um, so oh well. Cancer got me. That's why I stopped doing it. Oh well, that's a that's a yeah. that's a big yeah. yes. Yeah. That's a big thing. The cancer was um, a damn nuisance, really, and I had to have chemotherapy once a week for a year. Oh gosh, mm. and run a if business at the same time. And I had forget how many staff I had. <laughs> you know, food and accommodation and laundry and gardeners and. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
apprentices. And I knew in my life I wanted to live in Moiraki. And so the cancer made you take a step back? Yes. And reevaluate, I, yeah? I had, yes, I had to. Because I was meant to be in total rest to get the chemo to work. And it was not possible. And one really good case was where I had to take some pills each night and I'd take them last thing at night and I'd swallow them with a glass of wine. Yes, you do. And, <laughs> yes. Like the next day I'd be walking around this beautiful huge garden and I'd be like projectile vomiting oh. and everybody creeping around very scared and quiet. Um, and a lovely uh, friend who was a chemist came out with his laptop and he showed me what medication I was actually taking and you weren't meant to have any alcohol, alcohol ever. Just certain things I knew I couldn't control and it was a lot of stuff, 20 odd I suppose. And um, So a hard decision but a decision that you had to make. I, ha I had to do it and I had to think it's my life, I've given my life yep. for years. I don't think I was a very good mum. I loved them, but, you know, it was difficult. I, I think they could at least have $90 ski jackets. $90 seems to come up with it. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? In that industry, um, you give so much of yourself. It's very, very hard, especially um, uh, if you're a single mum. How the yes. hell are you going to run that business and give, you know, your heart and soul to the business and also be there for your yes. kids? It's, it's, it's hard. But, it, I mean, you've obviously, they've survived. They're still alive. They've survived, yep. And also, if you're any sort of a solo mum, if your kid does something wrong, it's so much worse because you're a solo mum. Yeah, yeah, it's your fault, but yeah. We had a pact, really, that if they were going to let me down, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> first, first, tell me first. So you were ready for it. <laughs> so how did Fleur's Place come about? you were starting to recover and you found something new that you wanted to get into? How did that happen? So why I wanted to come and live because um, it is one of the earliest European settlements in New Zealand. It is very bicultural. The boats and the ocean and it, people have always earned their living from the ocean, not the plough. And it's peaceful and there's the beaches and there's the shellfish and the the seaweeds, all these things to learn mm. in this village. And there's one road in and one road out. And I often think we should saw it off and make it into an island. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that saw be nice? Saw it off <laughs> and stay over here. And uh, so I was happy to live here and learn. And then I got invited out on a fishing boat. Uh-oh. That was the end of me. The the joke was they knew I'd had a restaurant, but nobody cared what who anybody was or what anybody had in this village. Nobody cared. And they heard I had a, a good restaurant. So they were joking. They hoped I didn't bring smoked chicken for lunch. The deal was I'd bring the lunch. And, of course, I did have smoked chicken with me. <laughs> My main worry was, how did I go to the toilet on such a little boat? And I tried not to have four cups of tea or anything before I left. You know, I was worry, worry, worry about that. 
and I just loved it. And, and, and why you say that, that that was the end of you, it changed everything, why? It just gave me that purpose of feeding people again. Right. And I watched the fish bodies, the heads and the frames, when they filleted the fish, that goes overboard unless they save a few big heads for their family or somebody wants some or something like that. And, of course, maybe on the third time or something, I got a little bit braver and I was sort of just, they could see I wanted to jump over and get everyone. And they explained to me it goes into the food chain, so it's not really waste. But I was thinking of... Um, stock. People, stock, yes. And if I could make, a, you know, bladder bags of beautiful fish stock to go to countries that have had tsunamis and some greenery must be there or dig under the ground and you'll find some root of a vegetable. That you, or something, yeah. Yep. So, which is still a, something that I get upset that I haven't actually done. And um, but I but I struck trouble with people wanting it if it was freeze dried. So that's the same thing like people wanted me to spray my flowers. No. So that was I the wanted... end of that. So from the fishing boat, then you got an opportunity to open flues. Yes. Well, Maureen, my friend from my Queenstown days, she was actually living in Christchurch and she's very practical. And she came down and she said, listen, your freezer, you can't keep buying more freezers. You've got to use mm. Anyway, one of my sons found a catering. So I opened it down on what I thought was just a road in Moiraki, in the village, near a, a concrete block place where the fishermen took their fish to be was taken away by Sanford's mm. company. But it was just a, a building there. And it was a bit of dry ground around beside it and I thought well I'll sell my chowder and my smoked fish mm. and I'll sell blue cod and salad and along came Shona who had worked for me in Clyde and she was with a guy living in uh, Moraki so she came down and, uh, and it was difficult because you weren't allowed to let anybody sit down outside and when people came, they started to bring their own tables and chairs. If they could sit down around my couch, I had to provide toilets. It made it not so much fun. And I only wanted it to be fun. And so I um, tried and figure out around all this. But one day, the little concrete block room had for sale on it, the winch and a chiller. And it had a flimsy room upstairs where the fishermen used to go and sit up there and have a few beers and talk. And if they were in real trouble with the handbrake, which was my wife, stay up there for a week maybe. So there was a toilet up there. So it had for sale and, and it got a bit tricky, but I did buy it when it was for sale. And um, I thought I'll use the, the walk-in chiller for the kitchen where I would make bread and the fish stock and I smoke fish, and I have a sign on the highway saying, fish smoker opened at 3 o'clock today. Come in and get your smoked fish. And, you know, I could imagine it all hanging up like in whales and everywhere, not whales, in Welsh country, and, and Ireland and everywhere, and I'll, I'll have this happening down. And um, But the caravan took over, and thank God Shona came along because... Um, I was doing all the yep, yep, yep bits and the bits and the 
pieces like that, pieces like that, and Shona was working away making this chowder, and and the, we we served it in a pan on an old-fashioned breadboard with a little bit of bread beside it, and people, and Jim Hickey, who does the news, and he's now got those restaurants in the air, airports and things. Um, he had a photo of me from the top of the hill, and he said in the news one day. Um, there's blue down here. It looks a bit third world, but it's great. That was a little big boost. And I got more and more grief. So I thought, righto, I can make a restaurant. And I had finished my chemo, but I still was pretending I was only fooling around. I wasn't wanting anybody to know that I was stupid enough to leap into the same business again. The, the good thing was everybody said it would never work. Everybody said no one would ever go away in there just to eat fish. She was probably the worst at times. But I, I, I didn't care. It was harming nobody. I was having a wonderful time and learning a lot of new things. So I thought, I'll be as quiet as quiet as possible, and I will build a restaurant. It took me nine months to get through the council and nine months to build it. Um, because I know I was going to talk to you, I've been thinking about, and because it's we're in lockdown, got more time to think or remember things. And coming back from the council one day, six, it's 66k trip from Moiraki to Omaru and back. So I would do that sometimes three times a day, definitely twice to the council to try and find out. But because nobody thought it would work, and I do believe woman alone is an alarm bell, and I think my age entered into it. I was coming past the Totra estate, and it's on the highway between Omaru and, and Moriaki, and I pulled over there, and I thought, this is terrible. I cannot get started. I cannot get my project started. And I had also had some land still in Clyde. And I thought, well, I could go back to Clyde and I could build a beautiful building with my timber from this old building I'd pulled down in the Hino up the road. I could build this beautiful building. I had this big staircase in the railway yard in Clyde. And I could transplant heritage apple trees and I could make cider and I could have a camper van park at, on the paddock that I owned at the back of Clyde and it would support the Clyde idea. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm just going to have to pack my bags, leave everything uh, now and go, over, go back to Clyde. And I sat there and I was thinking away and I heard my dad say to me, and my dad had been dead for some time. He actually died just after I had cancer and just when I was deciding that I would have to sell Clyde. And I heard Dad say to me, don't let those bastards be you. It's good on you, Dad. Yeah. So I turned the vehicle around <laughs> and went to Omaru, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe 20 k's or something, I don't know. And... Um, so I got the adjusted time, they were closing, and I said to them, well, I'm here. With new resolve. all the information that I require. I am not leaving your building until I get 
all the information. I've been coming in here for nearly nine months and, and told them how much, you know, how much it costs for fuel and everything else, and I'm not leaving till I get it. So there was a bit of a kerfuffle and a shuffle because I think they closed at half past. They all wanted to go home. And I said, well, I don't know what you're going to do with me, but I'm not leaving now. I'm here. And so there was papers and boxes and all these things coming out. You must have had this. She must have had that. I said, no, 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 I've had none of this. And a nice guy that used to work over in Clyde, and I knew from the council in Clyde, he came over to me and he said, Fleur, I can only apologise. You're nine months behind because you've never been given this information. So I took my glasses off and I walked over to the beautiful Omari Stone wall and I took my glasses off and I pretended to, I went like that and I pretended to hit my head on the wall and I said the four-letter word that you're not allowed to say several times. Mm. And so they locked me in. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I got all my paperwork, went off and got started. So... If it hadn't been for that incident, with your dad giving you the little little kick up the butt that you needed, yeah, well, probably would mm. never have happened. And so we opened the doors, but I, I was very very low key about it. I didn't want. So you explained to me what you wanted to do with Oliver's. What was it that you wanted to achieve with Fleurs for your customer? I wanted to serve beautiful, fresh fish, beautiful chowder made with the stock, just purely good food. Oh, that's what I've got written on my wall outside, for naturally good food from the Moriki boats. And that then started another whole journey. I was just going to say that's a whole other story, isn't it, trying to get yeah. the fish from the boats? Yeah. And, and then I had to go and get my own quota. Yeah. And I could have fish from the boat. Outrageous, yes. But yeah. every town lurking around the corner are bullies mm. that come out. Yes, yes. But um, I, I just go to work every day, exactly the same, same old car pretty much. Apart from all the usual, you need staff desperately. And everybody says it's the staff that make the job hard. In every in every it, regional town, yes. In every, yeah. Well, in cities as well, but especially in, in our regional towns, yeah. Pretty much I have got the most idyllic restaurant. I pinch myself on the way home so often to think for 20 years nearly I have been serving, fingers crossed, Beautiful food in this amazing system, tubs of fish, customers from all over the world returning, word of mouth, people bringing me beautiful vegetables, bibs coming back from the market with tomatoes on, on the, after the Saturday market in Dunedin. Mm -hmm. Just, it's a joy. And, and, and so on that... How did it feel then when we suddenly realised that we'd gone to level three and we had 48 hours and we were going to go into lockdown and that whole lead up where the, the restaurant industry in New Zealand, basically everybody went into, oh, we're going to serve takeaways because that was the only thing they could do to survive during level three. And then it was lockdown and it was like, okay, restaurants are closed. What was that like 
um, when you realised that you were going to have to close? Well, I had decided two or three days before that we would have to close. Before the actual announcement? Before the announcement. Um, my age, I don't want to get the, yep. the COVID. Yep, you're okay. at high risk, yes. Yes, and I... And I wouldn't have been thinking of that, but everybody was forced to think about mm. it because I knew I could not protect my staff. We are so busy and the people wait at the counter and they eat at the counter as well. But we turn the tables over all the time. It's rotating all the time. And we allow pretty much two hours per table. But because we've got no waiting space, if we don't keep them rolling, we get a build-up waiting at the bar. Mm. I'll always push everything to the limit and when I do something. But it sounds like you decided that you just couldn't do it, that you needed to close. Yes. And how did that feel? Because when you close, that means you've got a team of people that you're responsible for looking after and you're responsible for their employment and you can no longer employ them. It was the biggest relief when it came out. You could have um, money to pay your staff yes, from the government. Yeah. That was incredible. They were and incredible, yes. Yeah. It was, and, and you got it. I, I, I was too proud. I thought, no, I'm never going to open and I don't want to. I've got to do it the proper way or not at all. Mm. I can't do hand food to people and have them wash I can't keep people outside. Uh, it, it might be windy, it might be rainy, yes. and they'll have to come in, and then they'll use the toilet, and then they'll go upstairs, and then they'll want to look at this. I'll be out of control. So it's got to be lockdown or level one. But uh, it was like, wow, I never, ever, ever would have dreamed that this is how it would end up in the next 20 year cycle for me. My 20 years at Oliver's and my 20 year cycle here at Fleur's Place. Um, I called it Fleur's Place purely because any other names that I'd picked, the local iwi weren't that keen on the names and everybody here just called it Fleur's Place. But it, to me, it, I'm not talking about myself when I say Fleur's Place and it's not meant to have that little yes. yes. thing in it. But you've got all these mutton birds and you've got all this white bait and all the smoked fish for your smoked fish pies and you've got all the chutneys and pickles and all your product and all your eels and all the stuff. And suddenly you... just around the corner from Khan's Catering or some hospitality. We're out in the country. People don't walk past us. They have to know that they're coming. Your destination. To, yeah. We have to be on the ball all the time. And I, everybody looked pretty happy to run away home, lugging cabbages and cauliflowers and hunks of this and lemons and garlic and ginger and lovely peppers and everything. Off they were all going with supermarket bags running for their lives. I, I think I was in shock for about three days. Then I got this beautiful article from Gabrielle Hamilton. Yes, 
And that's the, the article that was in the New York Times, which is really why we've come together to have this conversation today. And Gabrielle is, of course, the, um, the chef and the co-owner of Prune, which is a, a New York institution. I want every restaurateur to read this in New Zealand. Every established restaurateur, every grown-up restaurateur, to read. it gave me such a beautiful, beautiful feeling, calmness. And I, I wanted to reach out and hug her. I found it was very hard to read, Fleur. It made me so sad. And, but it just, she wrote it so well and it just, it made me so sad to think of her sitting there at the end. She says, I started my restaurant as a place for people to talk to one another with a very decent but affordable glass of wine and an expertly prepared plate of simply braised lamb shoulder on the table to keep the conversation flowing. And I ran it as such as long as I could. If this kind of place is not relevant to society, then it, meaning her restaurant, should become extinct. Yes, she's been in New York for that 20 years and all around it have become other restaurants very, very similar to her. So she's one in the nest there. For me, I think what, ca what came from that article was the art of hospitality, having been forgotten a bit along the way. I want her to come here. I want to get her to New Zealand. I want her to come to Moiraki. I want to give her some food. I want to put her on a boat. <laughs> Maybe she's too New Yorky. I don't know. But I, I just felt she has got the same number of tables as me, 20 years, yeah. about the same turnover, more staff. When she says, like, she was watching it change because she had a $12,000 day and the next day was a $4,000 day and the next day was a $1,200 day. Mm. That's what can happen to us after Anzac Day. We hope it lasts a bit longer every year, but then we go into the winter time. I just felt I could melt into this article. Mm, mm. And I felt, thank you, Gabrielle. You have written with such clarity what I'm feeling for myself. I, I, I would hope that maybe she could... Um, Take time. I'll bet she'll go back and do it again. Yeah. Oh, it's in her blood. I mean, she loves it. Yeah. The question she's asking, though, Fleur, with, with the article is, will New York still need a restaurant like that once they come yeah. through this? Because everything is changing so much. And I would think that every restaurateur in New Zealand is asking themselves the, that question about their own business at the moment. What will their business be? Because... I mean, you chose not to do deliveries and take... You've cho chosen not to reopen during Level 3. And a lot of restaurants are doing deliveries and takeaways and doing quite well, but surely that's not really sustainable for a restaurant with overheads and wages. It isn't. It's, it's going to cost them more to do that. People shouldn't be expecting them to go through that misery. Mm. A man in the yard the other day... He's stuck here in lockdown. He's a tourist from somewhere and he's locked down in Moraki. He said to me, aren't you going to do some takeaway food? We would love to have had some of your food. And I said to him, look, I'm sorry, but if I gave you blue cod with steamed organic vegetables and your choice of one of four beautiful sauces and put it in a container and charged you $45, 
it would look like shit. <laughs> you would not want to pay me 45 You would not be happy. And he laughed at me. Yeah. I said, no. You can't it's coming it. to my restaurant. It's the service. It's your nice waiter. It's our beautiful wine. It's the coal range going. It's all of it. And it's Fleur and standing in the middle of it all. Yes. But we've still got another six weeks of money to pay the staff. I don't know what will happen at the end of that. I know that I can't employ them all. I, I've, I've been talking to them one-on-one -on -one and saying, we will be like opening our restaurant on the first day. You won't have the tourists that you would normally have with the borders being closed, so that must be frightening for you. We have done a really good job. We have catered for what the government has done in the tourism world, for the people they've allowed to come in and the expectations that people have. We would very, very seldom ever let anybody down that comes to the restaurant. We would never not meet their expectations. And maybe if we have on a few occasions, they have come with a chip on their shoulder about what to expect, or it can't be that good. We don't, we don't pretend we're good. We don't pretend we're perfect. We are what we are. We're, we're a provincial restaurant serving beautiful, understand where the food comes from. We look after the food. People say our carrots and collier and broccoli taste the best they've ever tasted. And what do we do with them? We look after them and we respect them. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And, but... We have done our part. We couldn't have done any more in the nearly four inches away from 20 years. Yes. And we could not have done any more or any better or been any more thoughtful and more caring and more pleased about what we do. It's the future of my staff I'm worrying about. Mm. I can do Fleur's Place with maybe four people properly and what am I going to do with the other 20 yeah yeah I haven't got that problem on my own and then the next lovely article you gave me is from Sophie Gilmore and that's what everybody should read too Sophie Gilmore's article was really about the industry having been broken before we even went into all of this yes I think um, unfortunately there's too many places for people to go and indulge in all those spin-off restaurants. Going back to Gabrielle's article, she said there in there that, you know, for the past 10 years I've been staring with alarm at the, the restaurant as the sort of restaurant industry transformed into a kind of colossal beast where the food world got stranger and weirder um, and, and the, the term waiter became server, the restaurant business became the hospitality industry, what used to be the customer became the guest um, and what was once your personality became your brand and the small acts of yes. kindness and the way you always used to have of sharing your talents and looking out for others became things to monetize and make yes. money out of. You know, I feel that when we come out of this, perhaps there'll be an opportunity to re-look at what the art of hospitality is truly all about because the ones that are left standing will possibly be those restaurants that can give those experiences. And, and Kelly, you're amazing. And I got all this out of this as well. This is this is for my messy mind. <laughs> Just did it. 
and the I know, but I've only got myself to talk to. <laughs> so I keep it all in my head. Well, that's why and I'm talking it, to you today. So what would you do, Fleur? What would you be saying to all of these kids and, you know, to restaurateurs that don't haven't been in the game for as long as you have and don't have the knowledge and the confidence that you have under your belt? What would you be saying to them now? It's like um, if they got cancer, mm. <laughs> it'd be worse. Mm. <laughs> you haven't done anything wrong. Brush yourself off. Start all over again. But, you know, maybe go for a hitchhike around or, you know, have a look. But they are young and vibrant and knowledgeable, got a good eye, hopefully all those things, and they will see another opportunity in a different way. No one could have ever dreamed, you know, a year ago that, that we would be going through this. But if, you're, if it's in your blood and you're really passionate about something, there's always opportunity with challenge, don't you think? Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess it's like me making the restaurant in Moiraki. That canoe's just up the road. <laughs> <laughs> Taratana's just down the road. But we've got to have enough people. Yes. That's what it is. And why I'm busy is because there's people, but we've got to go back again, go back and pick up, but they're all clever. It's a funny little thing. When I knew I had to have chemotherapy once a week for a year, I, I said to him, oh, no, I, I don't think I'll do that. <laughs> he said, Mr Sullivan, he said, you want a holiday, you pay. You want buy a car or something, you pay. He said, you want life, you pay with chemotherapy. And uh, there was a hairdresser lady in Alexandra, Somebody told me she'd had it as well. And I went and had a wee talk to her. And she said to me, if I had been told to go in the paddock and eat horse shit, she said I would have done that once a week for a year. Mm. So if you want to survive, you will. But maybe you're going to have to eat horse shit. <laughs> you know? You're going to have to do something, aren't you? It's not necessarily going to be what you thought yeah. you would be doing or what you want to do, but you will make yeah. it, you'll find a way yeah. to get there. Yeah. And, and it's not so bad because everybody's in the same boat. You know, people my age <laughs> have done a lot of things wrong and it's been their, their fault, but we, this time round, can't blame anybody. Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. For the love of food. Well, I know I will treasure that conversation. And I hope listening to it that you've been inspired by Fleur's warmth and determination and authenticity. You just know that spark will never disappear. You'll be glad to know that Fleur's has now reopened for lunches and some dinners through the busy end of the week. And Fleur says although it's not yet business as usual, she's been absolutely overwhelmed by visitors from the top to the bottom of New Zealand. All of them determined to get out and explore their own backyard and support local business while they do it. How good is that? Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. I'm Kelly Brett, editor of Cuisine Magazine, and I do hope you will grab a copy of our sensational 200th issue next time you're passing a magazine rack. You can find us on social by searching Cuisine Magazine and online at cuisine.co.au. 
www.nz where you can also pick up a subscription and help us to continue to tell these magnificent New Zealand stories. I'll catch you back here next week and hopefully you're heading off next weekend to do a bit of intense eating and drinking and exploring this beautiful backyard yourself. Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. I have to ask you this because there's one, I call it a scene in your book, I know it's actually your story, it's an actual true story, but you're at this party and it involves a beautiful man <laughs> and your big toe and some dip. Um, there was not really any way he was going to take much notice of me. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you shoved your big toe in the dip. <laughs> Well, I got invited with my friend Vela to uh, to a party in Invercargill, and this handsome guy came in playing a guitar from where the guys were by the washhouse drinking beer and stuff, and um, I thought, well, what a handsome guy! And he he actually came and sat down on the floor in front of me, and. Of course, I had my shoes off to go into the house, and he—he he, uh, maybe this is too much information, but he—but <laughs> he—he looked at my foot in his very happy state, and he said, "Jesus, you've got a white foot." <laughs> I said to him, "The rest of me is white as well." <laughs> and he just looked at me. Anyway, he was eating the chips and dip. Yeah. Anyway, he soon lost interest in me, even though he's still sitting there on in front of me. So I thought, now how am I going to get his attention? <laughs> so I dipped my bare toe, toes, in the bowl of onion dip, and he proceeded to um, lick them off my toes. <laughs> <laughs> I took him <them> home. <laughs>